Welcome to Two Cents FC. I'm your host, Amobi Okugo, back again with my guy, L. Each week, we'll be discussing topics from around the soccer world and giving you our unfiltered thoughts and opinions. This week, we're joined by Oakland, Oakland Roots founder and Oakland Soccer Club technical director, Benno Nagel, uh, one of my good friends, someone that's always doing it the right way. Um, I'm excited to have him on. We've got a lot to talk about. Uh, this week, we'll be discussing the origin of Oakland Roots, building grassroots soccer, and foreign leagues grabbing young American talent. Uh, Benno, how are you doing today? Doing well. Doing well. Happy to, uh, to finally sit down and, and link up. Yeah, it's been a while. We've been trying to get this to happen for the longest time. You know, L's from Oakland. He went to uh, Bishop O'Dowd. We're not going to talk mess about them. I'm from Hayward, <laughs> raised in Sacramento. So to have someone that's so uh, synonymous with Oakland soccer, uh, it's, a, it's a pleasure to have you on, you know? Man, I got to say Dragon Pride, dude, 2004. For sure. <laughs> oh, you graduated from O'Dowd? Yeah, yeah. That's a seven, oh. 2002. It's two, it's two yeah. against So we're probably there at the same time. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I was there. My senior year was like the first year they got turf on the field. Um, okay. And we played, uh, yeah, so like, I'm trying to think, guys, you might know. Joe Paz. Uh, Joe Paz. Joe Paz. Remember, L wasn't into soccer back then, so. Eric Meese, Jeff Moss, Matt Tuckner. They were nah. all, because I skipped a grade. I skipped, I skipped fourth grade, so I was born in 87. So I graduated okay. before, but I would have really been like class of 2005. Um, okay. That's awesome. Yeah. Right? So he was probably on the way out when I was, I was on the way out when you were coming in. So I probably okay. don't know too many of the freshmen. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I ain't the freshmen. <laughs> <laughs> oh, what? That's, a, that's, it's hey, crazy. that's what's up. That's yeah, a small sure. world. It's a small sure, world. Sure. So, uh, Benno, we ask this to every guest that comes on the show. When did you fall in love with soccer? And one of them fall in love with soccer. So I went to Hillcrest Elementary School. Um, and I started getting introduced to soccer, just playing, you know, at lunchtime, pick up. There was a kid that lived in my neighborhood. His dad was British. And so he kind of, like, you know, was a, a soccer guy. And uh, we would hang out and stuff like that. So I was probably maybe seven, eight years old when I kind of fell in love. It was hard because, like, back in the day, you didn't really have any opportunities to see the game. Yeah. You know? And so I, I can think back to... Fox Soccer Channel probably was like the first time you could really see soccer on the regular. Um, so I got introduced to it at a young age. I would say I didn't really fall in love like with it to where I would like, you know, uh, die for soccer sort of thing. And so yeah. maybe I was 16, 17. I respect that. So, you know, you mentioned the British guy. Was there a certain team that he supported? I know like, you know, British, they always had their teams. I can't remember. I can't remember. Um, it was, Jesus. this is, I'm 33. So this is like, 28 years ago but uh but he was always playing he always had a ball uh-huh. back in the day when you're like still riding your bike around and climbing trees and like not you know there wasn't video games there wasn't you know the internet all that stuff was like still kind of uh a newer thing um and so yeah that was kind of my first introduction we're just hanging out with him he always had a ball so we play a little basketball play a little football play a little soccer and i just kind of took to it that way a couple of my buddies were, were joining a team uh, so that was kind of my, my sign up back when they had like the reversible uh, jerseys, you know. <laughs> they need to bring those back, low key. They got to bring them back, man. You see an MLS kit come out next year, it's got to be like the reversible. <laughs> the reversible jersey. No, so talk about that. You know, you mentioned, you know, getting introduced to soccer through, uh, you know, friends, you know, Hillcrest uh, Elementary. But 
Uh, so did you play for a club scene growing up? Uh, like what led you up to what's like what you're doing now? Yeah, yeah. So I played uh, Rockridge Soccer Club. I actually started in Montclair Soccer Club when I was like eight and I played at Rockridge. Uh, they had a club at Bay Oaks, which is like the top. You know, they have like yeah. class one, class three, class four. So I played in Bay Oaks. Um, the team in my age group that was like the best in the region was in Southern Alameda County. So I went and played uh, with, with Satchel, I guess, S-A-C-Y-S-L, uh, Stars. So I played there and then went to college and kind of kept playing for another couple of years. Did the whole like NPSL uh, thing for a few years after that. Um, but yeah, I got my starts at kind of like the recreational level with like dads coaching. and uh, It was definitely a different hype than what you look at youth soccer today, right? So I kind of wish I would have been born like 15 years later, <laughs> but uh, but no complaints. You know, just trying to put it forward for the next, oh, yeah. next generation. Nah, respect. Yeah, I, I tell my younger brother every time, like, yo, you are so spoiled. If I was, if I was coming up now, <laughs> oh, Lee. If I, so you, you bring up a great point. You talk about, you know, helping the next generation, you know, putting it forward for the next generation. Uh, talk about, you know, all the efforts that you're doing, Oakland Roots, you know, how you started it. Um, I would love to hear, you know, that that context. Yeah, it's a wild story. Um, like everyone kind of celebrates uh, the success of, of Roots or like, you know, as an entrepreneur. Um, what I did kind of before that I thought was was harder, I guess, in that uh, me and, and two of my best friends, uh, you know, maybe 10 years ago, we were working in, in Oakland, coaching at Holy Names uh, College and then working in a youth club, a San Ramon soccer club. And then we were talking about, you know, getting to the highest level of the world and all the crazy dreams that young people have. And so uh, we kind of hustled our way into an opportunity to, to move to Europe. So I went and took a job with FC Twente in Holland. And then at that time, my, one of my best friends, Yvonne, got appointed to Dinamo Zagreb's Academy as a director there. And so I came in there, spent a year in Dinamo's Academy, um, came back actually and took a job with Ryo OKC in the NASL. Mm -hmm. um, and so it was kind of this like from coaching eight-year-olds in San Ramon and, and working at the college at Holy Name. So then being in professional level, we had like Samaras was in our team, uh, Derek Boateng, Marvin Chavez, Robbie Finley, like a lot of guys uh, working under Alan Marsna, who's now at San Antonio. That was kind of like the one in a million thing already. And so I, I came back. That project, unfortunately, uh, was a one and done. Um, and so I came back to Oakland and kind of had that realization of, of seeing Oakland having taken a lot of change. Like I was hanging down at the lake and they had folks doing like the slack line thing where they walk in between the trees and people were, you know, it was like different. Right? Do that, by the way. <laughs> it was crazy. And so I was like sitting there and I just had this moment and you know how it is like when you're um, in your coaching, you work in a crew, right? So one guy gets a gig, he gets like a, a, a big job and then he can bring, you know, four people, five people, so I was just kind of waiting for the phone to ring, really, for the next thing. You know, I was uh, potentially going to Saudi Arabia, uh, a couple opportunities in Australia. Um, and I, I love uh, Oakland, like I'm a local guy. Um, you know, I never really wanted to be living out of a suitcase forever. Like pro sports is really cool, but you're definitely bags packed every year. You don't really know where you're going to be. It's a different mentality, right? And so... Mm -hmm. um, I appreciated that. Like it, some of the best environments I've ever been in are super, super far away from home. Some of the best memories I have are with folks that are halfway around the world. But when I was looking at Oakland and just kind of seeing all the changes that were happening, I was like, man, how can I miss this phase of, of, of Oakland, you know, and 
um, at that point it was like, okay, what can I do maybe locally here while I'm waiting for the next gig to kind of materialize. I had read about SF City when I was overseas in Holland. That was kind of when I first read about SF City. I had research about Detroit City and Chattanooga. Um, so I knew it was possible. Um, and then it was really just an idea of like, okay, well, can I maybe put together a $50,000 budget and get an NPSL team? And in like 10 years, maybe be a pro team. Um, and things kind of picked up, uh, picked up from there. So selfishly, I want to, I want to know this. So it, it costs 50,000 to start an NPSL team. I think it's like less than that. I mean, like 15,000 to probably buy a, a license. Okay. Uh, but then if you're just like bare bones, they're lucky they have the Golden Gate Conference. So there's a lot of teams locally where you're not having oh. to travel overnight. Uh, but yeah, I'd probably ballpark it like 50 grand on a shoestring budget uh, okay. to, to do a team like that. Okay. Interesting. Interesting. Shout out Sack Gold, by the way, my boy, Sack Gold, <laughs> MPSL team. Um, so tell, talk to us about like, you know, when you first started, you wanted to, you know, stay close to Oakland. You know, you have, you know, you have a family there. You have your, uh, no pun intended, but your roots there. Uh, you didn't want to live out of a uh, suitcase for your whole life. And that you bring up a great point when it comes to uh, athletes at the pro level, whether you're coaching, staff, uh, player, you know, you don't want to move around every other year. But talk about like the mission and the goals that you know, formed. I feel like a lot of people with what you with what you created, that's what a lot of people gravitate towards. You know, the mission that you guys stand, the goals that you guys stand for, um, the community aspect. It's different from a lot of clubs. So you know, talk about that from you know, from your your standpoint. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the. I guess when you're from Oakland um, or you're from the Bay, you know, you just kind of feel really deeply rooted in, in the community that you're from and um, just want to make sure that the way you live your life is respectful to the people that have been there before. Uh, Oakland's going through a lot of change right now, uh, some good, some bad. And so I had an understanding of what was, was happening locally and wanted to see a, a sports team that it could actually be a real vehicle for community improvement. And so, you know, I had my my background as a player and as a coach so i kind of had a, a more of a selfish motivation to create a sports environment for players because you know like you said earlier uh, we all wish we would have been born later and had more resource when we were coming <laughs> up but that was definitely a big part of it was just you know I, i've been a youth coach where you're seeing kids that can't afford it uh, seeing really talented players that uh, just don't have the right coaching or the right circumstance um and so that was a, a big part of the motivation was just like creating a soccer environment that could be better than what i had and what my friends had um, but then when I started thinking about Oakland and kind of where it's at right now, and, uh, you know, I don't want to throw the word gentrification, but, you know, it's, it's happening here. Mm -hmm. I just wanted to say, okay, well, if, if we've got teams that are leaving, uh, maybe teams that haven't been as genuine as you would hope for them to be, uh, maybe giving more lip service to, like, we want to make it better here than actually what they do. I just felt that soccer could be... Um, a breath of fresh air. And I had seen by this point SF City and Detroit and Chattanooga, so I knew it was possible uh, to do something that was community-based. Um, and I think within Oakland, you know, everyone talks about like two degrees of separation from people, two, three degrees, you can really get to anyone in the city. Um, and so I knew that if we actually uh, built a club that was about a community, that you would get a community that would come around it. And so that was, again, the very like novice idea when I started out. And then you see the success uh, moving forward, I, I hope that we can be an example for other folks about um, how you can build a club from, from scratch, but then overnight really get that success because you actually bring uh, people into the conversation in a meaningful way. 
No, that's what it's all about. And, you know, you had experience coaching at, you know, in Holland and, you know, Dynamo Zibgrib, uh, even in uh, OKC, uh, Rio OKC at the time. Now you take it back to Oakland. I want to ask you this, from a talent perspective, what's the difference, you know, playing, seeing it from European level, seeing it from the States, what, like, what are we missing in terms of talent or do we already have it? And it's about like creating those communities, like you said. Well, I mean, like just genetically speaking, the, the genetics of an eight-year-old here versus in Croatia, they're no different. So I think you're really looking at the absence of culture. Um, when you talk about a young kid and, and mental ignition, which is such an important thing for someone to actually say, hey, I, I see that, I'm going to go do that. Uh, you just don't have kids that can really see a pathway for them. Um, I think that, you know, the biggest thing at the soccer level is just speed of decision making. Um, mm -hmm. So you've got kids that are uh, technically good, but can you make a, a, a decision when it's, you know, pressure and, and, and stress? And can you really cope with the demands of uh, playing in a very uh, challenging environment? You know, so I think it's not about the capacity of, of American players or local players is that they don't get exposed to um the realities of just how hard it is, you know, and Dinamo Zagreb, as an example, uh, from the U12 to the U13 level, like 50% of the kids get dropped, you know? So that means that by the time you're like 17, 18, you've gone through so many filtering processes where you've got like, outside competition coming in. There's kids on trial every week. It's just really a sink or swim environment. And so when you couple that with uh, all the success you can have, you know, financially, if you do well, um, and then just the history that people have where you can be like at the bakery and there's a 70 year old woman sitting there and she's got an opinion on soccer, you know, <laughs> or you're at the bus yeah. stop and your teacher has got an opinion. like everyone's kind of got it. You just get all these different inputs. Oh, uh, yeah, I'm mute my guy. You um, kind of form a better understanding of what's what's possible. A player yeah, set a better North Star for themselves. No, I love how you said North Star. And I think when it comes to roadmaps, you know, you see Dynamo Zagreb, you know, they've had countless and countless of players playing on the world stage, whether it's Real Madrid, uh, Barcelona, you know, all over the Premier League, uh, definitely a feeder league to most of the Bundesliga teams. So um, if we can get that environment, whether it's, you know, Oakland, I know Sacramento, we just got someone that drafted today, but if they see a roadmap of, you know, the Jaleel Anababas, you know, uh, the Cam Iwasas, the, you know, Tommy Thompsons of the world, uh, myself, you know, being able to see that at a younger age, those North Stars, um, that's what it's all about and keeping it within the community. Um, I think uh, I think that's a, a great uh, point that you made. And I want to ask you, as it as it comes to, you know, starting your, your, your club, you know, you're like, all right, need 50,000 shoestring budget, get it started. Now it's like, all right, now we go to NISA. Now you guys just recently announced USL. Talk about that process. Like, yes. what includes the move? Well, I think that the challenge is, um, you know, when you're trying to be a club that's trying to elevate your community, uh, you really have to try to aspire to the, the highest platform you can get. Um, you know, NISA is, a, is an amazing uh, league. It's, it's got amazing member clubs in it. It's got a real amazing vision around what they're doing, uh, but they're also a startup, you know, and so the reality of, of NISA is that um, it's going to be two years, three years, you know, five years, uh, maybe longer before they can really uh, fully uh, grow into the vision that they have. And so like we had no doubt that they were headed towards a good direction. Uh, when the opportunity came for USL championship, it just really made a lot of sense in that there was already a built-in league. Uh, there was already a lot of success stories of, of clubs that had gone out and 
you know, reach for a higher level. Um, and so it just, it wasn't a, a criticism of NISA as much as it was just an opportunity to elevate our community through sport. You know, when you talk about those young kids that come into our games and seeing in front of them, like an actual tangible thing that they can touch and feel, yeah. uh, we felt that having that ability to say, Hey, here's a game against Sac Republic. Here's a game against, uh, Las Vegas, you know, maybe here's a, a really big name player, uh, that you might be able to see that you just wouldn't, you wouldn't get in NISA right away. And so it wasn't anything about NISA. It was just more so about what we felt uh, the USL uh, provided for us and for the community. No, that's what it's all about. So uh, I know, you you know, your entrepreneur spirit is always thinking, always thinking about what's next. What are some things that you're excited about, you know, over the next two or three, five years when it comes uh, from a soccer landscape, you know, both domestically and globally? That's a good question. Um I think U.S. soccer is kind of at a weird junction where uh, you've got a, a lot of young players that are now kind of like making inroads in, in Europe. So there's a lot more interest in like the young undiscovered talent. Um, you've got a league that is striving for more. Even NISA, as they go forward, it's going to be more of a financial uh, demand on, on, on ownership groups. And so I think they're still trying to figure out, like if you look into Europe, you know, number one uh you know, number one, number two revenue streams are, are media money and, and player transfers, right? So I think that's for U.S. soccer. They really got to figure out how to bring those types of revenues in. Um, otherwise, you're really looking at, you know, can we build a stadium and, and, and earn revenues through that, right? So I think yeah. uh, U.S. soccer has to find ways to uh, just grow new revenue streams uh, to support the club. Um, I think in the next two to three years, I would hope that we would continue to see uh, rapid growth of women's soccer. I think that's a, a big opportunity for our country to continue to be one of the top, uh, you know, sporting nations in the world for women's soccer. Um, I think that would be a challenge because, you know, the rest of the world is starting to wake up to it. And, and I think once they get going, it's going to be hard to, to keep up. Um, and I really want to see more of an example from, you know, clubs at the top. You know, if you look at MLS, like how can they build better pathways uh, for youth players? You know, you see a lot of owners that are adverse to investing a million dollars a year into their youth academy, um, you know, can they actually do that? You know, will they actually take the risk to, to put more money into that uh, space? You know, on the commercial side, the uh, media side, like Americans are pretty talented for that type of stuff. So I don't think they're going to have any problems monetizing Twitter. Find <laughs> we'll a way to make money. Yeah, like they'll, they'll figure out a way to make some money. Uh, so it's really just, I think, you know, how can they be better about youth development? How can they get younger players into the first team? Um, you know, how can they be continuing to support women's soccer and keep us uh, where we are? Um, and I think also just looking to find better ways to relate to the community um, and not make it this kind of manufactured uh, fandom uh, where you've got, you know, 20% of your fans are really diehard, but the other 80% are very passive and kind of uh, some days they come to the game, some days they don't. So I hope that they can continue to build uh, just more meaningful relationships with folks at the local scene that can actually bring... Uh, passion to to the club because that's the lifeblood. I mean, you've played, you know, when you, when you go to a stadium and it's packed and there's energy there and there's a real meaningful uh, relationship with the folks there, like it gives you energy as a player, you know, and if you don't have that, it's hard to kind of um, sustain yourself through some of the hard moments that you have from season to season. Yeah. So like, talk about that. Cause like, how are you guys able to tap into like the community fan base? Um, obviously, you know, you mentioned like, you know, doing something authentic, that means a lot, but you know, we've, I've seen San Jose, I go to those games and I played in those games and we, there's not that many fans like that. So how are you guys able to get like, 
not only, um, you know, true fan support, but people that were actually invested in, you know, what you guys were doing or are doing, actually. I think what we did, and it was it's so weird because, like, people always talk about it as if we have some, like, magic sauce for for bringing community folks around it. Like, I think we just went to people and said, hey, like, what would you want to see from a team? You know, and we kind of try to build a, a, a table where folks could sit at it. And it's not for us to put words in someone's mouth of why are you sitting here? but more so giving them a, a platform to say, hey, this is what I want to see. Uh, this is what I believe in. And I think once we identified, um, you know, kind of key stakeholders within the community, it was more so, you know, you're not going to go and get 20,000 people to get around your idea the first day. Like that's just impossible. But you can get 20 people and you can find 20 people who can bring 100 people. And you give those 20 people a real meaningful, genuine um, conversation, I think they'll actually become your champions. And so I think we found that with, with Roots where we actually had um, people that we got early into the process that, that then became our champions. And um, as they kind of gave their stamp of approval on what we were doing, it enabled us to kind of get into the, the kind of, you know, one degree, two degree, three degrees of separation. And that allowed us to get a bit of a critical mass. Um, and then eventually we had to go from being an idea to actually playing a game, right? And so um, you know, once we actually provided something real where we have a league and we had players and we actually had a, um, beyond just the brand, like it was actually a club uh, mm -hmm. that allowed us to get the community that we got. No, that's amazing. So, uh, I'm going to try to shift gears a little bit. Um, so say you're starting over, no Oakland roots, no anything. You investing in a team in Europe, you investing in NISA, you investing in USL, you trying to get an MLS squad. What you doing? And and before you before you say that, we'll touch on this a little bit more when we get into our topics. But yeah, go ahead and answer this question though. Yeah, let me just plug my thing in here. So I think you know when people talk about um, investing in U.S. soccer, you'll hear a lot of people say, "Hey, it's it's a stupid thing to invest in U.S. soccer. You can go uh, buy a club in Europe for the same money you would spend there." Uh, um, I think it's dumb to invest in U.S. soccer if you're not investing in uh, European soccer. So I think it's really finding ways to uh, build those pathways forward. Um, you know, I would say if I were if I had one uh, thing to, to put money into, it would probably be European soccer. I mean, that's that's where there's an actual return. Um, if you do well, you can have a pretty decent return. Um, but I think the cool thing about American soccer is that you can create something from scratch. And so you can actually have a club where um, you don't have to be kind of limited by the history. You know, if you go to Europe, it's a very entrenched way of thinking, way of living, way of viewing the world. Uh, people are, are maybe more um, adverse to change, uh, yeah. maybe more adverse to kind of trying to do things differently. So I think what's unique about America is that you can actually go with a blank canvas and, and just create something, you know, and I think you've seen that with some of the teams like Sac Republic, right? 10 yeah. years ago, Sac Republic was an idea. Maybe it wasn't even an idea by that point. You know, now you got people that uh, live and die for that club, you know, and I think that's a cool thing that you can do where you don't have to be beholden to what was done before, you know, you can kind of uh, pave a new pathway forward. So I, I would say um, I would find a way to invest in U.S. soccer and European soccer and connect those two together. I like that. I like that. So um, with that, talk about your new role as technical director for Oakland uh, Soccer Club. Am I getting that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah Oakland Soccer Club. So um, 
it's a 40 year old nonprofit in Oakland. Um, you know, they've served countless thousands of, of kids and families over that period of time. Um, I had a relationship with Edward Steven, who's the, the co-president now. And we, if you think back to roots, actually, we played our first game uh, as Oakland Leopards in the U.S. Open Cup um, <laughs> in San Leandro. Actually, we played down at Burrell. Um, and so Ed was a good, a good friend of mine. And yeah, man, they got with the with the um, with the Pirates logo there out there. We, we played against the Oakland Stompers. We actually had like maybe close to 400 people came out to this Open Cup game. And that was like our first, like, wow, we could really get some people to show up. Um, and so they've been a club that's, you know, we think about pay to play and you think about all the challenges that that brings uh, for people. Um, every imaginable problem you could think of, they've got, um, but they've got a really good uh, mission. They have a really good vision for what they want to do. And they've got just amazing people involved, you know, real community people. And so as Edward became the co-president of that club, uh, he actually called me and said, hey, I just got in as the, the president. Um, I was still uh, with Roots at the time, and I kind of started working as a, as a free advisor for them, just kind of helping them think through, you know, what do you want to do? Why? You know, what does this require of you as an organization? Um, and so as kind of time went on, it just made more sense to get more involved. Uh, I'm, I'm a volunteer, so I'm not uh, earning any money for it. It's just purely uh, a passion thing for me. Mm-hmm. And when you see people really trying to do right by kids in our community, you, you have to help. There's just no no other way around it. So um, they've got a lot of work to do, but I really believe that they can be something special. And then hopefully people will start to track uh, what they're doing because it's real, right? These are real people are doing it for the right reasons. It's a nonprofit. Uh, they're trying to help kids in Oakland. And, you know, I couldn't say no to that. Perfect. Well, definitely let me know. You know, I'm always trying to do some stuff, you know, give back, you know, Oakland's home for me as well. Uh, Sacramento still got the first spot, but, you know, Oakland comes in, too, comes in at number two. Um, but with that being said, oh, you got any questions before we move on into like the deeper topics? No, nah, actually, I think um, it's a good segue. We can just go ahead and jump into the topics. We'll come back to two truths and a cap. Um, but we were talking about grassroots soccer and, you know, talking about the pyramid and, and U.S. soccer as a whole. Uh, we're only as strong as our pyramid. Right. And the biggest part of that pyramid is at the bottom. Um, and I saw a tweet from you the other day. Um, you were I think you retweeted something with the Midwest Premier League or something like that. Um, and mentioning like how this is how you grow grassroots soccer by having these regionalized leagues and really building from there. So if you were charged with growing grassroots soccer in America, how would you do it? Oof. I mean, it's tough. Like the way that they have the voting system set up with the Federation, it's, it's really hard. I think to, to, you would have to really change the bylaws of us soccer in the way it's structured to actually grow it. Um, I really believe that you got to find ways to tap into local clubs. Um, you have to find ways to get more kids into the game. I think right now financial barriers are the biggest thing that's keeping the game from growing, especially if you think about it in the black community or, you know, uh, the black and brown community, if you will. Um, so finding out how do you get around funding of soccer? Like I, I believe, and this may not be accurate, but, I believe that a fully funded U.S. Development Academy, which is now you know MLS Next, it's like a million dollars a year to to do that, like at a fully funded level, right? So, mm-hmm. if you're telling me that you got to go as a U13 player, fly to Seattle to go play a game, I just don't think that that's realistic, right? So, you got to find ways to uh, keep things more localized, more regionalized. 
still get kids meaningful games because that's a huge part of development. Like you have to find ways for young players to get exposed to a high level because that's the only way you grow, you know, pressure, not stress, but you have to give young kids pressure uh, if you're talking about, you know, at the top level. Um, but I think broadening the pool, right, if you look into uh, school settings and, you know, in Oakland, as an example, uh, you know, physical education budgets have, have really been cut a lot, right? So how can local youth soccer clubs work with schools uh, to provide soccer programs? So you get more kids playing. If more kids are playing, then eventually as the kind of the cream rises to the top, I think because you have a broader pool, you'll end up with, with more kids reaching a higher level. Um, and so it's, it's really figuring out, you know, how do you get around the financial barriers of access? Um, and then how do you get clubs working together? Because youth clubs don't have a first team, right? You're sending kids to college. And so there's not really like a, a clear pecking order of like who is who. And so everyone's kind of like with this nuclear arms race, trying to compete against each other, trying to poach players. So, you know, you got to get over the financial stuff, but then you got to get clubs that are actually working in the same direction. And that's hard. You know, that's, that's a really hard thing to do because it's pay to play business. And so the more kids you have, the more money you can make, uh, the more money you can make, the bigger you can get. And it doesn't really, it doesn't encourage good behavior from clubs. And so I think that's, you know, you get, and then the federation, you know, like how do they actually create a mandate that clubs have to abide by where it's not just the wild, wild west and you can do whatever you want to do, right? And so I think better guidance from the top down, but then better cooperation from the bottom up uh, and then removing those financial barriers of access. Um, I know that's a lot to do, <laughs> so um but, but I think those are things that if you start chipping away at them, that you can have success in five years, 10 years, you know, 20 years time. No, I mean, you hit the nail on the head when it comes to the clubs, you know, trying to raise prices. Like right now, especially with everything going on, uh, unfortunately, with COVID-19, I've, I've been hearing clubs at the local level out here, like keeping the price the same. And there's no games to be played. They're doing Zoom practices. So it's, you're not even offering the same value but you're still keeping the price the same. And it's really, it's really sad to see. Um, so if we can like figure out ways to stop that full stop, um, definitely, um, yep. definitely that needs to, that needs to happen ASAP. It's tough though. Cause like, like pay to play, everyone kind of talks about pay to play and you know, in other parts of the world it's free, but they're also, you know, they own the rights to the player and they're, yeah. they're going to sell them and they're going to make money back. So it's like someone's paying for it, you know? So um, and even like in Holland or in other countries, if you go to the, the amateur levels, the kids pay a fee to, to play. So there is pay to play. They have a more um, government makes more investments into uh, sports and sporting facilities. Um, so you have a lot of muni uh, municipally owned uh, sports facilities at the grassroots level uh, where they can therefore charge less to the kids to, to pay. Yeah. Um, but like Holland, like third level, third tier, the kids in the academies there are paying a fee. Uh, they're not paying as much, right? And so I think you got to figure out, like, you know, how do you get, how do you get healthcare invested in soccer? Like, how do you get someone saying, hey, if this kid's got asthma and he's nine years old, you know, over the next ten years, he's going to have this many asthmatic episodes, going to lead him to go to the emergency room. It's going to cost money. You know, if we can now invest uh, dollars into a local sports league for him, soccer, football, whatever that is, and this kid's participating. Now he's going to have a better health outcome. He's going to spend less time in the emergency room. It's going to save dollars for the system, right? So, getting folks to really view investing, you know, farther up the stream uh, with kids and providing them kind of that easier access. If you can get around health investment, I think that's one piece. If you look at law enforcement, right, and you think about 
wanting to find new methods of, of you know, community policing um, and, and, you know, defunding the police or maybe refunding or, or funding new methods of, of keeping communities safe. I think athletics can play a really big role in that. You know, I think um, sports for me was a way to kind of uh, focus a lot of uh, things from my life that I wish were different or better and, and find a, a, an avenue where I could go out and express myself and, and gain self-esteem and, and build kind of an understanding of how to be a teammate, how to strive for something. So I think if you can look at law enforcement and finding ways to take, maybe not take money from police, but find the police to go invest in sports leagues or, or to defund and, and put those monies into community settings, I think is, is a big thing, right? That I hope in 2020 when we can see that, that occur. If you just look at healthcare dollars and law enforcement dollars right there, uh, you've got a lot, right, that you can actually uh, tap into. And, you know, I don't know, um, like Sheriff's FC, right, like you've seen in, in Hayward. Yeah. They've got an MLS Next Academy, and it's free for the kids. And that's the, the Sheriff's Department there making an investment in community policing uh, through providing a, a sports activity for free. And so I think those are ways that um, – you know, otherwise, it's, it's, you know, pay to play is really the only model you have is fee based membership. And then that becomes exclusive um, to people who have the money and uh, the folks that don't have it, they just kind of fall by the wayside, right? Because they just can't, they can't afford the ticket price. Uh, I, you have time? Can you help me with my foundation? What's that? Can you help me with my foundation? For sure, man. Yeah, you sure. was, was giving some serious gems right there, man. Well, no, I mean, like, so my master's was in public administration. I did, like, public policy. And I studied, I worked for, like, four or five years with uh, trying to build exercise referral schemes in the U.S. And if you go to countries with, like, socialized healthcare, where the primary care physician uh, is actually able to speak to, like, a local gym, because they're kind of all paid for by the, by the government, mm-hmm. you can get a doctor that's actually saying, like, like, if you go to Kaiser, right, they ask you, hey, how many minutes a week do you exercise? Right. And so that was actually a part of this program called Exercises Medicine, um, where you would have in, in an ideal setting, and they have this in other parts of the world, your doctor could actually take a kid and say, hey, I'm going to prescribe you a referral to go play in the soccer league. And then they could actually call up the local club and say, hey, we got this kid, you know, uh, he's a, you know, a childhood diabetes or something like that, or he has some chronic health issue, and we want to put him into a sports league. And so I think that's that's a big one, man. If you ever want to chat about uh, your foundation and trying to grow it, I'm I'm all ears. You know, you know, I, you know, I know your line, so I'm gonna hit you up <laughs> <laughs> for sure, man, for sure. Yeah, and that's a good, I guess, kind of segue. If we so if we want to, we started with grassroots level. If we want to scale that down even more. If we were to build another team from scratch, what steps would you take? What things would you do different? What things would you like invest more time and effort in? How would you do that? Uh, I'd probably find better investors. Um, <laughs> but uh, but um, yeah, I mean, I think just continuing to do the same stuff, honestly. Like, I think that uh, finding ways to build meaningful relationships with people locally, um, you know, it's, it's more and more clubs are showing it, you know, like not just us. If you look at Sac Republic, even and the success they had overnight. Right. I think it's because they had a real vision around let's make this a community asset. And so I would just continue to do more of the same. You know, I think that um, you've got a lot of people with money in soccer. Like that's that's truth. If you look at the ownership groups of all these different teams, they've got no shortage of capital. But I think because they're people of wealth, 
you know, and, and maybe it's been a while since they've had to think about, you know, how am I paying my rent? How am I living? How am I, you know, how am I surviving? They kind of lose that connection to just like everyday people in everyday life. And so for that reason, they, they're not really able to, they can intellectually understand community-based soccer, but they don't live it because it's foreign to them and maybe not, not a fault of their own. Like they've been in a different world and living by different standards. Um, but I would say just keep, keep doing the same thing as, as what my plan is, is just double down on what you're about and then, you know, outcompete the competition. Michelle, that's all you can do. I compete the competition. Um, so is that something you're kind of planning to do with Oakland soccer club kind of help build them up I mean, they're a nonprofit, right? So I, I don't think there's any, there may not be any plans of like going pro or anything like that. Um, I don't know if you could speak to any of that, but is that kind of what your plan is as a technical director there? I think right now is just trying to help them stabilize where they're at. Um, they've got a really rich history. Um, they, they're real people in the community. So I think that there's uh, truth in what they say when they want to do something, they, they mean it. Um, you know, what happens beyond the next couple of years? I don't know. Um, there's, there's definitely no shortage of opportunities at the higher levels and that's growing every day. Um, so I wouldn't take any options off the table in terms of what they can be, but that's really, uh, just getting better direction from their board of directors of, you know, what do you want to do? Why, what does this mean? Laying out options for them of what, what's possible and what it takes. Um, you know, I definitely don't plan on, uh, stopping to be involved in soccer locally. You know, Oakland's my home. My family's been here for 40 years. We'll be here for another 400 years. Um, and so I, I'll, I'll have to answer that question maybe six months from now. <laughs> uh, they've got some fires they got to put out just kind of helping to deal with COVID. Um, you know, it's, it's been really, really hard for them. Pay-to-play sports has really uh, made it hard for them to survive. And so we're just trying to figure out how to get them stable. Once they're stable, I think that they're a sleeping giant. You know, they've been around for so long. There's so many families in Oakland that have a connection point to them. I think that this, the sky's the limit for them. So um, don't quote me on it just yet, but I think it's a club that's going to be uh, a big club in this country in the future, for sure. No, I love it. So you already said six months from now, we're doing part two in the update. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> I know we got a lot of updates from after six months. <laughs> for sure. Yeah, so one thing that we hear a lot, especially on the lower leagues, um, and as a, I guess, I guess a selling point for some of these teams is path to pro, right? So path from the, the youth ranks um, up through, you know, the academy, um, club team, stuff like that, and, you know, providing a path for them to go pro, you know, outside of college or maybe after college or something like that. Um, one league that's taking this model to heart, especially in this country, is La Liga. So the Spanish uh, soccer league, La Liga, has launched the La Liga Next in the U.S. It's a U.S.-based showcase um, program for American youth soccer players. This program aims to recruit the players um, ages 14 to 18 to join academies operated by La Liga clubs. Um, so La Liga North America is running this program, and they're partnering with the global sports agency ISL. Um so they're scouting, they're providing these scouting events that are currently scheduled to take place um, this June and July in uh, four Texas cities. So San Antonio, Houston, Dallas, and Austin. And each session will last two days and cost $150 for registration. Um, they'll consist of exhibition games, skills tests, and physical assessments, and all the sessions will be recorded. Um, so about 60 players from these sessions will be selected to travel to Spain for 10 days to compete in showcases and training camps 
hosted by um, La Liga Sports Academies, La Liga Youth Academies. Um, and the outstanding performers will be offered contracts to play um, for those youth clubs. So with European leagues moving in to recruit talent in the U.S. at younger ages, how does this affect the homegrown MLS academies that are currently, you know, working to do the same things? They're going to have competition for sure, which is a good thing. You know, they've kind of been on the pedestal, uh, maybe needing a little kick in the butt to actually start kicking into high gear and doing things the right way. So I think it's awesome. You know, that's a big thing right now where if you were to go um, – I guess German clubs maybe have, have really bought in the most. But if you were to go to Bruce Dortmund and say, hey, we want to make an academy in the Bay Area, they'll probably listen to you a lot differently now than if you went to them 10 years and said the same thing. Um, so I think it's awesome to see clubs uh, from abroad and leagues from abroad uh, look in the U.S. for players. Um, I think it's going to make it hard for MLS, right? Because in a mobile, you know this better than anybody. What they do is they, um, they sign you. They give you like a multi-year deal if you're a young kid. They assign an artificial number to you for your value. And now they're going to go send some, you know, hey, you want to buy this 18-year-old? It costs you $300,000. And you're like, well, why would I do that? I can go get a kid from my local area for yeah. a fraction of that. So, you know, I think if you're a 16-year-old kid and you're striving for the highest level, like, don't go play in MLS. Go try to be in Europe, you know. And, and if you don't make it, come back. You know, and you can still uh, try to reach a high level domestically. But and it's not right for every kid. You know, some kids aren't um, maybe psychologically, they're not ready to go to a foreign country. Maybe from a social perspective, they need to be closer to family. Like it's not it's not right for every kid to go to Europe right away. Um, but if you're really striving for a high level, you, you got to be with the best. And so I think seeing uh, this La Liga Next uh, initiative is, is a big sign, right, that clubs from abroad and leagues from abroad want to invest in the U.S. marketplace. And so I think it's awesome. And I hope that it uh, pushes U.S.-based clubs, USL, NISA, MLS, to really uh, look at the U.S. youth investment and say, hey, this is actually something that we have to do. It's not like, do we want to do this? It's like, we got to do this if we want to stay uh, viable as a, as a business. So I hope more of the same. I hope you see Bundesliga. I hope you see the Premier League doing it. Um, you know, we, we need that in this country because we haven't had I think the right long-term view of player development here. Um, and all that happens is the kids, uh, they suffer the consequences because they don't have the right resources in their environment because the owner doesn't want to put the money in. And the owner doesn't want to put the money in because he doesn't see a return. And uh, I think that maybe shows up why you don't have fan bases that really care because you don't do anything at the community level, which includes youth investment. You know, if you have a 15-year-old in your club, even if he doesn't make it to the first team, if he's been in your academy and he's got a positive relationship with the club, you know, that's a fan for life, you know, and you're getting his whole lifespan where he's now following your club, investing, you know, his time and dollars, buying a shirt. Um, so, yeah, that's awesome to hear. I hadn't followed the La Liga next thing, but that's exciting to hear about that. Yeah, I would completely agree. Bundesliga, La Liga, Premier League, uh, Liga MX, any league, come, come to the States. Yeah, it's going to force – MLS is going to force USL is going to force NISA um, and all these other clubs to like really take an invested approach on how they develop and provide value for these young players. You know, uh, I know FC Dallas is still salty, you know, Weston McKinney got away for free. Uh, uh, who else? Chris Richards got away for free. So, you know, they really changed up their model um, and, you know, no disrespect to FC Dallas because they're one of the forward leading 
uh, forward thinking, you know, academies, uh, MLS academies, they do it the right way. Um, but now Brian Reynolds, um, they're going to be able to sell him for, you know, upwards of eight to $10 million. And that mm -hmm. doesn't happen if those two instances um, before, you know, never, never took place. So I think it's really important uh, what, you know, we don't see us going to these other markets and kind of following that similar approach where, you know, Bayern Munich will set up a location here, but hopefully by them doing it here, we'll turn around and make sure, you know, we, we harness our talent. And if we're going to sell them off, um, you know, at least get funds back to hopefully create the next line of talent uh, in the pipeline. Yeah. It's weird, man. Cause the U S is like capitalist system, but then yeah. in sports, it's like super socialized. You're like, Oh, we got a territory. You can't come within our radius. Uh, you kind of have this like false scarcity, which I think is the way that they drive valuation up. Um, and so I think if you're looking at La Liga next and they're saying, yeah, like we want to go be in the New York market. We don't give a shit about Red Bulls and New York city FC. Like, there's kids there. We're going to go, we're going to go operate there. Yeah. There's so many clubs. I mean, if you think about all the professional clubs and then you look at all the amateur clubs, I mean, the pro clubs maybe represent less than 5% of the total uh, U.S. soccer uh, player pool, maybe even less, yeah. right? So if I'm a club from abroad and I'm saying I want to go uh, invest in American soccer, like I'm not calling the New York Red Bulls. I'm calling, you know, some club in New York that's not the New York Red Bulls and I'm yeah. going to try to grow that way, right? So I think it's it's really cool to see it. I hope that uh, the competition will make them better, you know, to make the MLS guys better at the end of the day. So, yeah, it's really cool. I hadn't, I hadn't heard about that. So I'll have to look more into, uh, you said it's called La Liga next. Yeah. La Liga next. I I'll send you the link Okay. where I saw it. Um, I think, uh, Dallas did get some money from McKinney, like retroactively. I think uh, they got from, from Juventus. Oh, uh, from Juventus, but not from Schalke. Yeah. No. Oh, see, they still missed out a little bit. <laughs> they're, supposed to get a, they're supposed to get a sell-on percentage of uh, what Schalke got, you know. Yeah, I think I think Juventus kicked them a little something. Yeah. Okay. Like, yeah. good looking. I'm about to go grab another one from me. <laughs> yeah. Starting a business relationship there. Let's keep this relationship going, you know. Right. Yeah. Well, um, we had already all the kids going into Mexico, right? I'm sure Moby yeah. grew up with a bunch of guys that wound up going into Mexico, um, you know. And so I think it's already. Yeah, it's, just, it's such a big country. There's so many kids playing, you know? Yeah. And that's why I go back to saying, like, the, the eight-year-old kid in Texas is no different than the eight-year-old kid in Belgium. They just have different environments, you know? And so if you can create those environments, it's not like, you know, oh, well, only in San Antonio can we develop kids, you know, and in El Paso you can't. You know, you can go develop them wherever. You just got to bring resources and then provide a pathway and, you know, biology and, and human spirit and all that stuff um you know evolution kind of takes care of the rest right if you put something in front of somebody it, it'll get done right people will achieve yeah. things but you got to have something in front of you to strive for something and i just don't think there's been enough um real pathways created for players and i think if they if they can create more you know america it's just impossible for us to, to not become a giant in the world there's too many of us you know, there's too many kids playing, so knock on wood. But uh, hopefully, in our lifetime, we can see a World Cup lifted for the U.S. You know, I hope so. Ooh, yeah, hopefully. Yeah, Maybe we got a chance with this generation. Uh, I don't know about that yet. <laughs> I don't know about that one yet. 
Well, hey, we got right? we got a shot to go far. It's just tough because I think that's the challenge. Like Weston McKinney and Christian Pulisic and all these guys are good players, but can they be good players for ten years? You know, can they play at that level for every every year? Can they deal with injuries? Um, you know, at the highest levels, it's not. I mean, everyone's got talent, but who can keep the motivation? Uh, who can play injured? You know, who can really kind of be like the walking wounded and still performing at a high level? Yeah. So we got a lot of young guys that are doing well, but you know, can they keep that level? And then can they reach even a higher level? So I think it'll happen. Um, it's just it's tough, man. The highest levels, it's hard. You know, even the USL level, you see how much that's jumped in the last couple of years. So it's yeah. it's it's hard to compete. I would say with this golden generation consistently, we should expect to make the quarterfinals of the World Cup. I don't uh, I could maybe make a semifinals, but I still don't think we're there yet. You got France, Portugal leading the way. Um, you know, you never know what the other Belgium. Um, but it, it's it's we'll see. We'll see. It's been a crazy couple of years because we haven't really got to see them. But mm, we'll see. It's gonna be interesting. All right, for sure. All right, so let's jump into a couple of games. You know, we like to play games around here. Um, first one, uh, two truths and a cap. So, Benno, we want you to tell us three facts about yourself. Two of them will be true. One of them will be a lie. And you know, Obi and I have to guess. Um, I haven't been keeping tally, but I think I may be up. Really? You said he had at, at least one point. How does that work out? <laughs> I ain't be okay. keeping track, but I think just from my recollection, I think we played just like three times. I think, okay. I think I've, I've won more than I've gotten it right more than you. All right, so we go two to one. Keep track now. Two to one. All right. Okay. Let me see here. So two truths and a lie. Um, all right. Well, first one. I'm a massive fan of Chelsea. Um, you know, going back to the Fox Soccer Channel, um, been supporting Chelsea my whole life. I think they're hands down the, the biggest club in the world. So. Uh, no offense to other people that don't like Chelsea, but that's my team. Um, the second one is uh, I'm married to a, a Brazilian uh, woman. Uh, so my wife is from Sao Paulo. Uh, my commitment to U.S. soccer is so deep that I want to, you know, bring some new genes into our player pool. So, <laughs> so my wife is Brazilian. And uh, the third one would be that I'm, like, deathly afraid of flying, uh, which has made life interesting, uh, traveling around the world for soccer all these years. Um, so yeah, that that would be the three. I guess I'd I'd throw out there for you. Hey, you know, one of them was a lie, right? Yep. One okay. of them was a lie. He was telling them like really enthusiastically. <laughs> I was like, wait, does he know the rules of the game? Okay. What I had to make a hard for you, you know. Yeah, you said your wife's name before the show. Uh. Well, as a as an Arsenal fan, I'm going to say the Chelsea one is a lie. Really? I'm gonna just lay it at that. Like, uh, Chelsea, uh, a lie. Benno, he's traveled the world, so I could definitely see him married to a foreigner. Um, afraid of flying? That's tough. He went overseas. He lived overseas. Uh, yeah, you're afraid of flying. That's the lie. I'm a, I'm a huge United fan, so I, I hate Chelsea. <laughs> My brother's a big Chelsea fan, so I had to say that. You know, that way he can have a joke about this later on. <laughs> I was but like, yeah, no, I, uh, but I'm a big fan of United. Oh, okay, respect. Top of the yeah. table right now. I don't know how that's happening. <laughs> we'll yeah, see. I kind of, I kind of, I kind of picked up like the irony in it. I'm like, all right, this Chelsea thing is probably ironic, so I'm gonna go with Chelsea. <laughs> <laughs> Dang, so you're up no disrespect to Arsenal, though. You know, no disrespect. Yeah. You guys are going through a tough one, but 
Man, there's a, there's a club that needs new ownership, right? Labor of love being our supporter, <laughs> for sure. And yeah, we definitely need new ownership. Uh, um, I'm not rocking with him. But Cronky? <laughs> nah, just play <laughs> Stingy silence in? Nah. <laughs> Um, all right, let's let's jump into another game that we love to play here. It's called No Card, Yellow Card, Red Card. Um, so this is a rapid fire game that we play where I'll read off some some headlines, some news headlines, and we will rate those headlines or rate the I guess the topic based on the soccer card system. So no card is I agree with it or I'm cool with it. Um, yellow card is I can go either way, and red card is I disagree, I'm not cool with it. Um, and so you know, when you give your card rating, also kind of give a reason why you gave your card rating as well. Okay. Um, so let's jump right into it. No card, yellow card, red card. Christian Pulisic's GQ photo shoot. Damn, that's a red for sure. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm going to go yellow card just because I read the article. It was a good article. And then I, I, I watched the video of like 10 things you can't live without. He's definitely getting fried in the group chat with his boys. Uh, he mentioned he'd be on a house party and stuff. Uh, I know, like that, that his young group of players, they probably frying him in that, you know. So, um, yeah, I'm going yellow card. I ain't gonna hate on him. GQ Thank probably you. was like, "We need you to, we need you to pose like this." It wasn't his decision. <laughs> Benno, you said red card. Yeah, I gotta give a red man. Whoever's handling him's gotta get a reprimand on that one. Like, <laughs> they shouldn't have set him up like that. <laughs> Uh, hey, Christian, your response got to be, "Hey, I got paid for it." That's all. Yeah, you that's, true. that's true. Like, <laughs> yeah. but you talking about me though, right? So. <laughs> hey, that's, that's pub. All oh, right, next okay. one. No card, yellow card, red card. Don Garber's letter to MLS fans. Man, I think I it just came out today. I don't know. If I had a chance to read it. Are they talking about the the fan groups and stuff? Walk walk so, me through. Catch that 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 letter. Yeah, let me pull it up real quick. So essentially, Don Garber had um, like a a whole like public announcement about like what's been going on because of the the CBA disagreement between MLSPA and MLS. Mm -hmm. So he like wrote a a message to the fans. So give me a second, I'm gonna pull it up. Um, If he here we go. Commissioner letter to the fans. So I'm gonna read it real quick. So forgive me. Dear MLS fans, on behalf of everyone at Major League Soccer and our clubs, I hope that despite the challenges we all continue to face in 2021, you and your families are having a happy, safe and healthy start to the year. He did not write this, by the way. Shout out to the ghost writer. Uh, with the victory by Columbus, all right, blah, 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 blah. Today we turn the page and look ahead to the 2021 season, blah, 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 blah. Through all the excitement that comes with the launch of a new soccer season, the COVID-19 pandemic is still very much with us and brings a great deal of uncertainty. I know fans miss being able to attend matches last season and it is certain that there will be significant limitations on attendance this year. Unlike other leagues here and abroad, we are hit harder financially when our fans can't attend games. Coming out of the pandemic in the strongest possible position will continue to require everyone in MLS to work together, aka MLS, take a pay cut. Last year forced us to make all all tough decisions and endure new and difficult challenges. We were forced to reduce our staff at the league and club level, as well as reducing salaries. We made significant budget cuts to allow us to fund key initiatives like the MLS's back tournament and to continue to pay our players 95% of their salaries. Our players faced new challenges as well as with a revised schedule that had them away from their families for weeks on end and during new pandemic-related health and safety protocols. 
blah, 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 blah. We met with MLS Players Association and their player representatives in early January to talk about how we can deal with the ongoing challenges with the pandemic and impact on MLS for a second year. The MLS ownership group presented a fair proposal, a fair proposal according to the MLS ownership group, to a very difficult situation that provides the players with 100% of their salaries this year in return for a two-year extension of the MLS collective bargaining agreement. I'm proud of the solution that our ownership group has presented. The, owner, the MLS ownership group takes the risk and financial losses from the pandemic this year while protecting the long-term stability of our league by providing an opportunity to earn back some of the financial loss in the future. Uh, blah, blah, blah. Like we, like you, we are all eager to begin the 2021 season this coming March. We presented our proposal to the MLS two weeks ago and look forward to receiving a response. They haven't received the response yet. And then goes on to say, blah, blah, blah. Thank you. MLS will preserve and emerge stronger than ever. And we thank you for your support. Regards, Commissioner Don Garber. Damn, I wouldn't even say that's a red card. That's like an expulsion from the league. <laughs> Ooh. Game anymore, man. The way it works, like, so sports teams lose money. And you got rich owners that are writing off those losses. And they gain value in the, in the club over time. So, you know, you lose $5 million a year, but you gain $50 million in value. You're, you're, you're netting on the balance sheet money, right, if you ever sell the team. So I think that's a front. You know, that's just a front for we're cheap. You know, mm-hmm. I think that's, uh, so I would say that's, that's worse than a red card because you know, you're taking guys uh, and their livelihood and you're trying to leverage uh, their talent um, to, to kind of build your league, right? Like that's the lifeblood of, of any league as the players. And uh, they come out and say that you're going to uh, kind of give uh, maybe crumbs. Um, you know, I think, I think that that's not – I understand that with COVID and the, and the fans and not having fans, I mean, that's, that's a real thing. You know, clubs are losing revenue. Um, you know, they got payroll. They got expenses. But if you're really saying from MLS that you're about raising the game in this country and you're going to be here for 50 years or 100 years from now, then I think that's a cop-out. You know, put your money where your mouth is. If you look at all the money that's being made in the market right now, you know, these guys aren't hurting for cash. So <laughs> that's just them being cheap. Yeah, they, they knew about Moderna like two years ago. So, you know, <laughs> I'll just play. Uh, uh, yeah, I'm going to give it. So from the standpoint of uh, uh, the soccer players, I'm giving it a red card. But from the standpoint of, you know, Don Garber and MLS owners, I'm giving it a yellow card. It's just tactics. It's business. I'm currently reading 48 Laws of Power, so I'm like kind of like, you know, all about negotiation and leverage. So I'm only I'm only gonna give a yellow card. But what I will say, and L, make sure you cut this clip because do not MLS players, MLSPA, do not, if you agree to anything, do not sign an extension past the 2026 World Cup. This is a tactic that they're trying to use. The MLS media rights will expand. Money is going to be coming to America and US soccer and MLS. And the players, you guys have a chance to have leverage. So if you extend that, if you extend that CBA, that's leverage lost. So please, whatever you do, work it out if you need to work it out. But do not extend anything past the World Cup. That should be the one, like most definitely the one thing we're not. That needs to come off the table. It needs to come off the the term sheet, whatever. That's we're not even coming to the table unless those years. Man, I wish I was still on the players rep union. I, I caused a lot of trouble back, back in the day when I was on that. Ooh, that get me started. All right, here we go. Sorry, that's that's fine. Still, all right, nah, man. See, you got the insight, man. So this is stuff that most people don't get to see. 
you know, having you on here, um, you're able to kind of give us some insights on what's going on in the background and what what they should and shouldn't do. So that's definitely a good look. Appreciate it. Um, next one: no card, yellow card, red card. The Czech FA claims Ronaldo needs another 62 goals to break the real goal record. I haven't heard this one. Can you tell us a little bit about this, Samogi? Yeah, so the Czech uh, the Czech Federation, um, because the, the record holder is, uh, I forget his last name, but Joseph, uh, uh, what's the name, Proctor? Let me look it up real quick. I should have just put it in the show notes, uh, FA. Um, but basically, Ronaldo just uh, beat this goal scoring record. Um, but according to the Czech FA, um, and I, am I pronouncing it right? Yeah. Czech. Czech. Czech? Yeah. So, um, Joseph Bikan, uh, famous Czech player, uh, played for a number of different teams. Um, his goal tally is 821. Apparently it was, uh, 759 a week ago, but once Cristiano beat it, uh, the Czech FA came out and said, no, it's actually, uh, 821. Uh, so um, Cristiano Ronaldo would need 62 more goals to beat, beat their man. They threw in all the friendlies to go with it. Yeah, yeah, man. I I would give that a no card. Um, <laughs> I don't even know how to figure out what that would. I mean, like, like it could be all made up, right? Like, yeah. Pelé just had that thing, didn't he? Where he was talking yeah, about Pelé, he was Pelé finds new goals. Yeah, Pelé finds new goals every year. Pelé, uh, Pelé will year. come out of retirement, dude. He'll, he'll, he'll be 90 years old, come out of retirement just to score a penalty for some local club <laughs> just, to, <laughs> just to get back on top. Um, but, yeah, man, I would say no card. It's so hard. You start counting goals. You know, like, do preseason games count? Do, you know, like, how do you uh, how do you do that? So he's, you're saying he's got 62 more to go. Ronaldo does before he would pass? Yeah, according to the Czech FA. And this guy that has the records not playing anymore? Yeah, he's uh, he was wait like in the sixties, like sixties. Okay. I'll yeah. give it a no card. Ronaldo will probably stick around until he beats that record, regardless. So, yeah, Ronaldo's gonna make like a whole little docu- documentary about it. Like, I broke the record. They didn't want me to beat it, so I, you know, I stayed. <laughs> and you know, so he still has another forty goals when he comes to MLS too. So, uh, he should be fine. I'll, so I'll give it a yellow card just because yeah. like last week we wasn't even talking about this. And then now these goals came out of nowhere. So, you right. seen that guy playing in Japan? He's like fifty-three. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's definitely Ronaldo going. Ronaldo's going to do that. Ronaldo for sure, <laughs> for sure. <laughs> oh, all right. Last one: no card, yellow card, red card. So the Right to Dream Academy gets four, gets a forty million dollar investment. No, $140 million. My bad. Oh, yeah, my bad. I read that wrong. $140 million investment. Tell us a little about this one. Oh, oh damn. This is good. I, I, I got to remember that. So, capital, uh, Man Capital invests $100 million in, in football partnership with Right to Dream Academy. So, um, essentially, the chairman um, wants to kind of take this Right to Dream Academy model. And for those that don't know, Right to Dream Academy, it was started by uh, an English gentleman. Um, it's basically like a program in Ghana um, that gives, you know, uh, young Ghanaian kids opportunities to you know, develop their skills, um, not only soccer skills, but life skills, and then sells them to different, you know, opportunities around the world. So there's been a number of, you know, Right to Dream Academy players that have gone on to college in the States and then gone on to play in MLS. 
there's been a number of right to dream academy players that have gone on to play in like uh, feeder leagues in like sweden norway denmark and then gone on to play a higher level so um they're like the example model that a lot of people use when it comes to building these um pathways um so this egyptian billionaire invests uh, uh up to 140 million dollars um to kind of follow this model and bring it to egypt um in a football partnership so um ben i definitely wanted to include this you know because of some of the stuff that you're doing um i feel like this is not similar but similar in a way and uh it's recent news so uh for me i give it tough i want to give it a yellow card um because i'm still skeptical seeing how they're going to do it um but no card because whenever you can invest in the talent um i'm excited about that yeah i would give it a no card i i I know tom i I spoke to him a couple weeks ago actually and he was uh, talking about name drop that so i'll be really excited yeah I know they're really excited about it. Um, and what a success story. I mean, you look there, I think in the last five years with Nordschland, they, they've transferred like $60 million worth of players. Um, a lot of those kids obviously coming from the, the academy in Ghana. And so to see um, that right to dream model and then trying to bring that i think they're putting it in egypt right and they're, they're doing some other yeah. places um that's awesome that's that's definitely a no card for me no nah, respect yeah it's it's just the level like when you when you invest and you create impact like he's helped over thousands of kids you know not only from a soccer perspective but a life perspective i play with a couple of players that you know went to the right to dream academy um all great kids joseph yarrow emmanuel uh, Francis, you know, those guys. Um, so when you, you know, when you provide impact, then, you know, opportunities come in, you know, for, for your, for your friend that you name dropped, you know, Tom, uh, he's done a great thing. So, um, yeah, I love it. Yeah. Yeah. And this is, it's the hard one too, because you see the opposite where a lot of people for a long time have gone and taken players out of Africa and like taking them into Italy, France, I guess those are the two biggest places where, you know, they'll put 20 kids in a house, they'll put them on trial, they don't make it, the kid winds up homeless on the streets of yeah. Milan or Rome or France. And, um, you know, you see a lot of people doing it for the wrong reasons. Um, mm-hmm. Tom's a guy I don't know that well, but we I've gotten to know him. My two best friends are, are, are friends with him. And so, um, you know, learning about what they've done and he was there, um, geez, like a long, long time before Nordschland was even bought. They, they had the academy there. And so to see yeah. someone do it for the right reasons and then to have success. And then now that success is being replicated. I mean, that's, that's the dream, right? That, that people can yeah. actually take kind of idea diffusion and, and lean from, you know, from successful models and uh, to do that, that's, that's what you want to see. Right. So props to him for, it's a lot of money. <laughs> yeah. It's a lot of money to put into the academy. Right. Ooh, I need to get started. See, man, I got to talk to you, man. I'm trying to get something like that out here. Let's do it, man. Oakland's ready. <laughs> Respect. <laughs> sure. So, so that's it for no car, yellow car, red car for this week. Moby, you want to wrap it up? Yeah. Benno, thank you so much. Uh, where can people find you? I know you're a great follower on Twitter. I always tap into what you're saying. I never know what to expect. But where can people find you? Where can people tap in with you? Yeah, so I'm on uh, Twitter, uh, Facebook. Um, I'm not really being on social i hadn't really been big on social media in the past but kind of getting more i guess with the times um 
if you want to come find me, I'm out in Oakland. You know, if anyone's in the neighborhood, they want to go figure out how to grow soccer here, you know, hit me up. Uh, just send me a message on on Facebook or Twitter, and I'm usually pretty responsive. So. Nah, you're not lying. And I, last time I was in Oakland, I just told him I knew Benno. Everything was set up for me. I was good. I was good. My <laughs> whole trip was red carpet. The red carpet for me. So <laughs> you in Oakland, you in the five one zero area. You mentioned name drop Benno, and you good. I swear. Um, good in these you, streets. Buddy. Yeah, you good in the street. <laughs> uh, but thank you so much for taking the time. That's our show for this week. Uh, subscribe, rate, and review. It helps us get discovered. Follow us on the socials at Two Cents FC. Uh, check out our merch at Sports.shop. It helps support the show. As you can see, me and L rocking the hat. The hats right here. You see them? Get your hats. <laughs> uh, tweet us your comments on the show and any topic you want me or L to discuss. Once again, Two Cents FC, the only show that's giving you unfiltered thoughts and opinions. Oh. Peace out.